The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I just want to read from verse 7 down to the end of the chapter. Paul says, but if the ministry of death, which he has just referred to as the giving of the Mosaic Covenant, I'll explain in a minute why it's called the ministry of death, but he says, but if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. He's comparing the two covenants, the old two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. And he's saying that the old covenant was like a ministry of death. The new covenant is a ministry of the Spirit. And so he says it has much more glory. Verse 11, for if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and not as Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, that is the Old Testament, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their heart. But whenever it, that is their heart, a person's, he's talking specifically about the nation of Israel who rejected Christ as Jesus as the Messiah. And he says, but when, a, when their heart turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, that is all of us, who have been brought into the new covenant and live before God under this new covenant, we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. You may wonder, what is, what is he talking about here with Moses covering his face? Well, the account of this is back in, in Exodus 34. If you remember the account, when God brings Israel, his people, out of Egyptian bondage, and he brings them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, he, he wants them to come there to worship him. And so he forms them into a nation at this point, and he calls Moses, the leader of the people that God appointed, he calls him up on the mountain. Now, it's scary because the mountain told, as they described the mountain, there was lightning and thunder and all kinds of manifestation. It was really scary. And Moses goes up there by himself, and he stays for quite a while. When he comes down, his face is shining. That would be impressive, wouldn't it? His face was glowing because he had been in the presence of God. And so at first, the people are afraid to come near him. They keep their distance. But he calls the leaders to himself, and he spoke to them, and he told them what God told him. That's where you have the explanation of the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. And then what Moses did was, once he finished talking to them, he put a veil over his face. 
Now, interestingly, what Paul makes a point of is he put a veil over his face because he didn't want them to see the glory fade away. And this is a picture of the fading glory of that old covenant. It was glorious in its origin. When God gave this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, it was quite glorious, impressive in every way. The people were shaking in their boots because they found themselves in the presence of God, or in their sandals. They found themselves in the presence of God, the manifest presence of God. And so Moses puts a veil over his face. And it, it, was, it was so that they would not see this fading away of the glory. Now, I got to tell you, if you stop and think about that, that would be quite impressive, wouldn't it? When the, if a preacher got before a congregation and his face was glowing from his being in the presence of God all week. And, but Moses knew that that wasn't going to last. But every time he would go into the presence of God, into the tent of meeting, he would take the veil off and he would speak to God face to face. And when he would come out, he would put the veil over his face. Now, what Paul is doing is he's using this incident to give us a comparison and a picture of that old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, which contained the Ten Commandments and much more than that. He's comparing that with the new covenant under which we have come to live. We talked a bit about this last week, about the old covenant and the new covenant. I'm going to show you a chart here. This chart's going to develop. I know some of you, when I show these charts that I come up with, and I, I usually recognize a few weeks later, that probably wasn't as clarifying as it was confusing, but hopefully this is uh, clarifying. We have two covenants compared in this passage that I just read. We have, first of all, the old covenant, which was the Mosaic covenant. The covenant was given to the nation of Israel. He formed them into a nation, and he gave them a covenant. He said, this is how... You are to live under this covenant in relationship with me. I mentioned last week, we all uh, have certain covenants we live with. Some people are living in a, in a neighborhood where you have a, uh, a covenant that you have to live up to. I live out here in the country, so we can park 100 vehicles on our property, and nobody will say anything. In fact, we do. <laughs> Almost. We all have covenants, but the marriage covenant is probably the best picture of the covenants that God makes with his people. And, and these two covenants are not the only two. There are other covenants, of course. There's a, the Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant, and so forth. But this, these are the two primary covenants uh, next to the Abrahamic covenant, which is the primary covenant that God made with Abraham and promised salvation that was going to come through a seed of Abraham, which is Christ. But these two covenants are covenants of life. They're how we are to live before God. Now, the Old Covenant, which was given to Israel, contained the Ten Commandments, which included, for example, the Sabbath law. Some people wonder, probably, why don't you keep the Sabbath? Because we don't keep the Sabbath. This is not the Sabbath. This is the first day of the week. The Sabbath was yesterday. I'm, I went down and uh, did some yard work at the church office on the, yesterday, the Sabbath. Why, why can I do that? Because we're not under the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are wonderful because they give us, they express the heart of God and His, His holiness. And they still have some real wonderful application to our lives. They're very helpful. But we're not under the, that old covenant. We're under a new covenant. 
The reason we meet on Sundays, for example, is the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday. This is the Lord's day. And so we meet together corporately. We gather as the people of God on Sunday to worship him. And that's been the habit of the church from the very beginning. So this old covenant was a covenant made with the people of God, Israel, for a period of time. It had a shelf life to it. It was to be in effect for a certain amount of time from the giving of the law at Mount Sinai until Jesus came. And we'll look at a passage in just a minute that talks about that. Now, what he's comparing here is the new covenant. Now, let me tell you why he's doing this, because there's some people who come into this church and tried to, con- to convince these Christians that they needed to live under the law and keep the law, follow the dietary restrictions of the law, follow all the stipulations of the Mosaic law. And so Paul wants to clarify to them that they are not under the Mosaic covenant. They are under the new covenant. And as we mentioned uh, before, one of the ways that we can describe this is that this ministry of death, the Mosaic covenant, because of its distortion by the people of God, became, which were letters engraved in stone. God engraved those, those letters, that, those words in stone. We have, the, we have two stone tablets. They both have exactly the same thing on them. They were for a different purpose. One was to put away in the Ark of the, of the Covenant. The other was to keep in another place. So there were, two, there were two copies of it. But the Ten Commandments on those stones were written by God through Moses. And what it became because of the hearts of the people who were on it, under it was, it became everything from me and nothing from God. And that's why it's called a ministry of death. It brought these commandments from God. This is what you must do. And some of them had death penalty attached to them. Let me give you an example. If, if you've ever had, I'm sure there's nobody here like this, but if you've ever had a child rebel, you, under the Mosaic Covenant, if they refused to come under your authority, you were to stone them. This is why it's called a covenant of death. And then he's comparing that with the New Covenant, the ministry of the Spirit. Now, I want us actually to look at these two passages. First of all, in Exodus 34. You can find Exodus because it's the second book in the whole Bible. So Exodus 34, verse 29. Listen to this account. This is an account by Moses of what took place at Mount Sinai when he brought the people, two million people, out. Maybe there's some... Might have been exactly that amount, but that's what's estimated. He brought these massive a group of people, these Jews, descendants of Abraham, out to meet God at Mount Sinai. And it says, it came about when Moses was coming down from the Mount, Mount Sinai, he had gone up to be with God, just him. And when he was coming down, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand, as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him, with God. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterwards, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord spoken on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. 
But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. They knew he'd been in the presence of God. It was a dead giveaway. Because his face was shining from this exposure to this glorious God. And he said, so Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him again. Um, now I'd like you to turn to this other passage in Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, we have the promise, one of the places in the Old Testament, we have the promise of this new covenant that you and I are living under that came through Christ. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, it says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. That is in contrast to the covenant of Moses. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although it was a husband to them, declares the Lord. They never did keep the covenant. And God said to them at one time, Oh, that you had a heart to obey it. You say you, you love the God of the old covenant, but you didn't obey the covenant. And this is why it became to them uh, everything from me and nothing from God, because they didn't understand that what the old covenant was supposed to teach them was their desperate need of a Savior, that they could not be righteous in their life. And they needed a Savior. And so that's why he gave them the sacrificial system, to point to the fact that he was going to send a Savior for real sinners like them. And then it says in verse 33, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them instead of on stone tablets. On their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. You see, God says, I'm going to do something greater. I'm going to put my law in your heart. In fact, I'm going to give you a new heart. And nobody's going to have to teach you that there is a God because you're going to have a relationship with him. And so everybody under the new covenant has a relationship with God. God lives within them, and they know God. And they commune, and they live a life of fellowship with God. Now back to 2 Corinthians if I could get you to go there, Second Corinthians chapter 3. So these two covenants that we've characterized here as the old covenant, life under the old covenant, and believe me, there are people in the church today who want to pull you under the old covenant. And life under the old covenant is everything from me and nothing from God. It's me performing so that God will accept me. Whereas the new covenant is nothing from me and everything from God. And you say, wait a minute, don't we have to do something? Yes, but only as God provides exactly what you need. For example, he has to give you faith in, for, in order for you to believe. So everything is from God. We, by grace you have been saved through faith, not, not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That he has before ordained that we should walk in them. In other words, the work that Christians do is simply responding to the Father and allowing Him His work in our heart and responding in faith. Now, the Old Covenant was written on tablets of stone. And he makes a big point of this. It was these commandments on tablets of stone. And 
the commandments were clear and the consequences were clear if you broke the commandments. Whereas the, the new covenant, it's written on the human hearts. God does something to the heart. And in the Bible, the heart isn't just the emotions. The heart is like, well, it's like the central processing unit of your human nature. And what God does, he touches you in the deepest level of who you are when he saves you. He writes his law upon your heart, the new heart that he has given you. And then uh, the old covenant is characterized by fading glory, as you see down in verse 7. The glory is fading. And that's the point of giving them this picture of Moses who put the veil over his face because the glory was fading away. And he didn't want him to see that process. Whereas the new covenant is a bounding glory. But it's a different kind of glory. Nobody's face shines here. Well, a couple of you have some shiny faces, but most of you try to get rid of that, right? So our faces aren't shining. You can't tell a Christian by the outward uh, look that they have because God has done something deeper. He's done something to the heart. And because of that, what we see of the glory of God is something different than a shining face. It's a heart being conformed to the image of Christ. You say, what does that look like? Let me give you the symptoms of sanctification. The symptoms of sanctification, that is, What are you going to see in a person who actually is being transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ through the Spirit? What are the the characteristics? What are the symptoms? You know, they have a temperature or what? Well, no, they begin to manifest this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, faith, goodness, and self-control. You have to write those down. That's that's Galatians 5.22. It's character. It's the character of Jesus Christ. You want to see what it looks like? Well, one place you could look is the best place is to look in the New Testament Gospels and read the Gospels and notice what Jesus is like when he deals with people. And he carries out his life before the living God. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, faith, goodness, self-control. And that's the glory of the new covenant. People get changed. That is so much better than the Old Covenant. Now, notice the Old Covenant is characterized by condemnation because they had, there was, it was filled with all these commandments and stipulations about those commandments that if you failed to obey them, if you became rebellious to your parents, for example, and you were incorrigible, they simply stoned you to death. That's pretty severe, isn't it? Aren't you glad you're under the New Covenant? The New Covenant is characterized by righteousness. I heard a guy describe righteousness the other day in a way that it isn't like technically the best definition, but it has some real merit to it. And that is that a righteous man, a man who's righteous in character, knows how to make things right. Knows how to make things right. He knows how to reconcile people, for example. One of the greatest challenges in life is is your ability or your attempts to see people reconciled who've been alienated for some reason. It's the most dangerous thing you'll ever do too, isn't it? But a righteous man, and Jesus Christ, of course, is the righteous man, has the ability to make things right. Remember Job when he, uh, he was being 
basically accused by his friends that the reason he was suffering was because he had sinned in some serious way. And he kept telling them, I've walked righteously before God. And they kept on, and he kept getting more defensive. And he finally said, oh, that I had a mediator between me and God. A a mediator that understood me and understood God instead of these worthless encouragers. And that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. That Jesus Christ can reconcile you with God. And it's never too late to be reconciled with God as long as you're breathing. Now, let me tell you, you got a great example of that when Jesus was crucified. If you remember one of the thieves that were on the cross next to him, one of them, one of the thieves was criticizing him and saying, hey, if you're the Messiah, then get us out of here. The other guy said, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That simple act of faith. He turned to Christ. While he is hanging on a cross, being executed. Now, the other thing is, and this is the point he's going to to, uh, make a big deal out of, and that is that the Old Covenant was characterized by a veiled face. Now, the veiling of the face has this significance in the flow of this passage. Hiding who I am. Hiding behind a veil so you can't see the truth. Because Moses, I at first, when I read that, I thought, well, he put the veil on because he didn't want them to be afraid. But it's clear what he would do is he would come out and he would talk to them while his face was shining. The glory of the Lord being manifested on his face. But then he would cover it up so they couldn't see it fading away. So this veiling is talking primarily about the fact when we cover up the truth about ourselves so that we can perhaps get someone to accept us. Whereas under the new covenant, we have bold speech, which means freedom of speech, that we can actually be who we are. We, can act, we don't have to pretend to be something we're not. We can be who we are because the work of the new covenant is what God's doing in your heart. So you don't have to, you don't have to veil your face. Then he makes this point. He said the problem with Israel was because they were trying, because they were living under what they thought was nothing from God, everything from me. And so they were trying to project their own righteousness. In fact, I, we're right there in First Corinthians. Why don't you turn back one book to Romans chapter 10, where Paul's talking about Israel. He was an Israelite, and he's talking about Israel who had, as a whole, rejected Jesus as a Messiah. And this is what he says. Verse 1 of chapter 10, Romans 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that is for Israel, is for their salvation. I, I pray that they would turn to Christ and believe on him as their Messiah. He says, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness, not understanding it, and seeking to establish their own, that is, establish their own through the keeping of the law and all the marks of the old covenant, circumcision and all that they went through, a priesthood who put on a certain kind of garb and so forth. So they wanted to establish their own righteousness, and they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Subjecting yourself to the righteousness of God is by faith. It's what Abraham did. 
Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And the way that you came to be a believer is you put your faith in Jesus Christ was the evidence that you'd been born again. He says, verse 4, for Christ is, this is what I want to get at, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law was given, according to Galatians, until Christ came. It was given for the, the people of God, the Old Testament people of God, Israel. They were kept under the law until Christ came. When Christ came, the law had achieved its purpose. The Mosaic law had achieved its purpose. It had brought the people of God to this place, and Christ came through them. He came through a virgin birth of a young Jewish girl. And now that Christ has come, we are no longer under the law. And so he says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices righteousness, he's talking about under the law, under the Mosaic covenant, the one who practices righteousness, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. For the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend up into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? For the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. And if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, they're made right with God, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So as you look at this complicated chart here, and you can see that on one side, on the left, is uh, the Old Covenant. And there are plenty of Christians who want to try to get you to live under the Old Covenant. And on the right is the New Covenant. It's the ministry of the Spirit. And they're juxtaposed to each other. They're, they're very different. And what God's called us to do is live under this New Covenant, the ministry of the Spirit. Now, how do you live under this new covenant? How can I possibly live under this new covenant? Here's the answer, verse 18. But we, that is under the new covenant, we all, with unveiled face. And his point in the context is, just being who I really am, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now, I want you to remember in the context, he's talked about glory shown in the face of Moses. And now he's talking about the glory of Christ seen in his face. But we can only see that through the word of God. So he says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same, into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord. I want to read a few verses in chapter 4, not to explain them, but just, unless I get tempted to, but just to uh, illustrate what he's saying here, because he clarifies, therefore, since we have this ministry, that is this new covenant ministry, uh, we have received mercy, and we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden, that is the things that, me pretending to be something that I'm not, we renounce the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, not twisting the word so that you'll like me. Not twisting the word in order to gain advantage. But by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, 
Even if this gospel that we preach is veiled and people can't understand it, can't see it, he says it is veiled to those who are perishing. They're refusing to see this gospel. And then he says in verse 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The glory that he's talking about back up in verse 18 is what the Jews couldn't see when they read the Old Testament, they couldn't see Christ. They could not see Jesus as the Christ. So when Jesus came on the scene and they're looking at their scrolls, they didn't believe he was the one of whom this old covenant document spoke of. They were blinded to it. Their faces were veiled. Their eyes were veiled and they couldn't see. But what happened to us who have believed on Christ? The veil has been removed and we can see. And so when I come to the word of God, I can see Christ. I can even see Christ in the Old Testament when he's quite visible. For example, in Isaiah 53, this is a passage, I I think I will turn you there just for the fun of it. Isaiah 53 is the passage that was most preached by the apostles. Remember, the, the apostles, when they started preaching the gospel, they didn't have the New Testament. There was no Romans, there was no gospels, there was no epistles, just the Old Testament. And so they're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. And here's one of their favorite passages. We know this from church history, from history, that they would use this passage to preach the gospel. I want to just read it to you. You tell me, do you see Jesus in here? This is what it says. Verse 1 of Isaiah 53, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, who has been impacted by this truth? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. He didn't look like a king, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from, the, from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Now imagine the apostles preaching from this text to people who had been yelling when Jesus was tried, crucify him, crucify him. And he is saying, this is the one of whom Isaiah spoke 750 years before Jesus came into the world. Can you imagine how convicting that would have been? He goes on, and all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like the sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered, who among them considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people? to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men and so forth. Well, all of that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and he's preaching to people who saw it happen, and yet their eyes were blinded, and Paul says they had a veil over their eyes. You understand that principle? You know how when you get mad at somebody or somebody gets mad at you, and and when you talk to them, you can tell there's a veil over their eyes. They can't see anything good in you. All they can see is their bad feelings towards you. And, it, and I've been captured by that, and so have you. 
And so their eyes were veiled. They didn't want to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. This was the most unlikely-looking Messiah they'd ever seen. All the movies you see about Jesus, he didn't look near that good. No makeup. A Jewish man who was despised. Beaten to the point that you couldn't recognize him as a human, according to this passage, if I had it read on. And so, their eyes were veiled. They couldn't see that this was the Christ they had been waiting for. And he goes on to say, and it remains there. It remains there until their heart turns to the Lord. And then the veil is removed. And all of a sudden, they see. And he says, this is how, this is, the, the, I think, an important part of this passage. The point is that this is how transformation takes place. You know, there's, there's thousands of books written on how to change. And you probably bought some of them. I would have you raise your hand if you bought one of those, but I won't. But, you know, there's just thousands of books written. I'm talking about secular and sacred books, or secular and non-secular books. I'll tell you, this is the key to change. This is a key to change who you are and what you are and how you act and how you feel. There's all kinds of books that tell you that, but here, right here, and this is free. Verse 18, but we all, that is all of us under the new covenant, with unveiled face, in other words, just as I am. You know, we used to sing that song, just as I am, without one plea, with that, thy blood was shed for me. We come just as we are. But we all with unveiled face. In other words, not getting my life straightened out and then come to God and say, will you accept me now? Am I okay now? No, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. He's saying what he's talking about is when I come to the Word of God and I see Christ in this passage, when the veil has been removed from my eyes and I see the glory of the Lord, I'm being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. As you come to the Word, and in the power of the Spirit, He opens your eyes to the glory of Christ in this text, and you discover who Jesus is, and it begins to impact your heart, and it actually affects your life and affects your worship, for example. I want to read you something. This is from a a little book called Habits of Grace, which I strongly recommend, by the way, you can even get it free if you want. You can go on uh, desiringgod.org and you can download it free as a PDF file, but it's called um, Habits of Grace. And basically what he does, he shows that God's given us these habits of grace or these, we would call them spiritual disciplines, so that we can uh, develop habits of life where we come to the Word and see Jesus Christ and are being transformed by it. And uh, he had a little, he just had a thing in there about a quote from uh, Martin Luther. This got me. Uh, Luther said, at home in my house, there's no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church, he's talking about when we gather together with the congregation, when the congregation is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. The reason we meet for corporate worship, by the way, is not to take an offering. The reason we meet for corporate worship is so that we can worship together and so that we can actually experience the reality of Christ together. When somebody says amen, 
it's like very rare here. I think only on Tuesdays have I ever heard an amen. But uh, when you say amen, not to what somebody's saying, but say amen to, the, to what we're singing. Think about what we're singing. And we sing these glorious words about who Christ is and what he's done for us. Does it ever hit you? Does the Spirit of God ever just turn the light on in your heart and you see the glory of Christ? Those kind of moments. Psalm 73, the writer of the Psalms says, he begins by despairing over the prosperity of the wicked, his wicked peers. But then the fog clears as he comes consciously into the presence of God. And this is what he says. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. That is the end of those who are walking in contradiction to who God is. He was, he was in a battle. There was a spiritual haze about him, and it was very thick, and he was confused. But the breakthrough came in the context of worship with God's people. And he says this in response. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I've found this to be true. Haven't you? Um, more times than I could even count. Instead of staying away from worshiping with God's people, we come together and we sense God changing us from being lethargic and uncaring and unfocused on Him, and all of a sudden our hearts are captured. Back when, uh, in the uh, back before you were born in the seventies. <laughs> Uh, I had a business. I was running this business, and I was, and we had a Tuesday night Bible study I would go to. And I can remember this in numerous times, but I didn't want to go because I was tired. I had worked all day long, and I was tired, and I didn't want to go. But I would go. I'm just out of obligation, and God would lift my spirit. I met God there. <laughs> it was amazing. And when I met God there, it impacted my heart. It lifted my spirit. It gave me spiritual energy. No doctor can do that. No medication can do that. No energy drink can do that. Only God can do that. And that's why he tells us at the very end of this passage, um, is this is how we live in this new covenant that we with unveiled face, with beholding as in a mirror. In other words, the idea, some think this means uh, reflecting the glory of the Lord. Well, there is that element to it, but the word just means to behold, to look very carefully. Where do you look really carefully every morning? In the mirror. You look in the mirror, and you notice every little bump and every little thing in your, your countenance. And what he's saying is, come to the Word of God. Have you noticed the details as you read it? Has it ever jumped out at you? You ever come to the Word of God and the glory of Christ just hits you like a ton of bricks? That's what he's talking about. And so he says, with unveiled face, I come as I am to the Word of God, uh, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, or being, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. You can see this in people. You can actually see it. Because you can actually see the effects. 
you can see the manifestation of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, faith, goodness, and self-control. You can see it. Now, you can't, pre- you can't fake it. It doesn't do any good to fake it. It only comes about through your exposure to Jesus Christ and his word in the power of the Spirit. And I just I want to <clears throat> I want to encourage you to just to do this very thing in your life this week is come to the Word of God expecting to and you need to learn how to hear God's voice in His Word. In fact, this book I recommended, Habits of Grace, he divides all the disciplines up into these three categories, and he has specifics after that. But the first category is learning to hear God's voice in His Word. The second category is having His ear, talking about prayer. And the third is belonging to his body, that is fellowship with his people. You know, living the Christian life, learning the Christian life doesn't come by sitting in seats listening to sermons or sitting in a Bible study. Learning the Christian life comes from actually experiencing it. You actually have to feel it. And what, but I'm using that in a colloquial way, you know, that uh, Dewey, who's sitting right here, he, I, I rode motorcycles for a long time and I quit riding and I never rode street bikes because I'd been on a street bike a couple times. I crashed a street bike because I couldn't figure out how to turn the thing. I thought if you just leaned, it would turn. And they didn't, they don't work that way. And Dewey one time was talking to me about this. We got in the conversation and he knew all about motorcycles because he had crashed two of them really bad. And so he began to tell me about counter steering. And counter steering is when on a bicycle or a motorcycle, if you're going at any speed, the way if you want to turn right, you push it left. When the front wheel goes left, the, the bike turns right. It's absolutely counterintuitive. And he told me this, and I believed what he said. So I went and tried it, and it worked. But it wasn't until I actually experienced it that I actually felt it. I felt what it, fe- it feels like to go into a corner, realize you're not turning sharp enough, and putting more pressure in the opposite direction, and the bike turns tighter. It wasn't until I actually felt that, experienced it, that it became second nature. That's how the Christian life is. Uh, We can tell you to pray every day, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. But the fact is, until you actually experience what it's like to come into His Word and hear the voice of God in His Word, it isn't until you actually experience prayer that God hears. It's not until you experience real fellowship, Christian fellowship with a brother and sister in Christ, where you can actually truth and love and speak to one another as members of the same body. It's not until you do that that you learn what it's really like. It's, that's when it goes down deep. It becomes intuitive knowledge. That's why discipleship has to happen through exposure to one another. Discipleship isn't going to happen by you sitting in a class and filling out blanks on a piece of paper or doing it on your own. That's, that's not, that won't make you grow. What makes you grow is experiencing, for example, this one thing, this is a breakthrough truth, is that if I experience what it's like to be in His Word and actually all of a sudden realize that I'm reading this, that I'm seeing Christ in a way I've never seen Him before, and it's touching my heart. It's actually affecting me in my sensibilities, my affections. And when that begins to happen, we begin to learn what it's like to live the Christian life. And it's a lot easier than riding a motorcycle. 
and it's a lot more fun. It's a, it's a glorious uh, thing that God wants to teach us that I want to grow in, don't you? Um, so let me pray for us to do that. We'll sing after this. Father, um, I come before you now interceding and supplicating for my brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord. I don't want us to be a group of Christians who meet together and do things together and, and try to accomplish some things together. I want us to be people who experience real transformation by the Spirit as our eyes are open to the glory of your Son. I want us to be the kind of people who um, engage one another in the things of God, who encourage each other, build one another up, use our words as words of edification. I want you to work in our lives and then give us, give us the confidence with unveiled faces to share our lives with one another. We want to grow. And we know that growth, a part of a growing is growing in the context of the congregation of the people of God. So I pray, Father, that you'd work in us and you'd work through us and you would be glorified in this process, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.